you uh, experienced this, it seemed like with the new year, it felt like uh, a time change, and so I, I, the rest of the week I was all off trying to figure out last night eating dinner. I went, wait a minute, it's not Friday, it's Saturday. We have church tomorrow. I, mean, I got to get my mind right. So <clears throat> we, uh, we're happy to have the Johnsons with us. There's a new little camera back that we are live streaming right now, so they are watching. So if you pass that camera, wave. And also be very careful what you say, because you can hear everything. It's a very sensitive microphone over there, but we are overjoyed to be able to, uh, to still have them. They went to church this morning, and it was all in French, and I said, I promise I will not use French today in the sermon, or have to excuse my French in any way. I will not do that. All right, if you would turn open to, please, uh, Zechariah chapter 5. As we pick back up in our series, Light Pierced Through, uh, this, this prophecy from Zechariah, but all these visions that he's receiving are in the, the restoration process of Jerusalem and Israel after their exile into Babylon because of their faithlessness, their idolatry, which we'll look at again today. Uh, they, they thought they could control God, and God said, you can't control me, I call the shots. And he used 70 years in captivity with Babylon to teach them he is in control and to get their hearts right. And they, now they're coming back to this community and God wants to restore his presence and restore his glory in this community. And, and the two visions that we'll consider today and look at are God's reminders, hey, make sure that you're still walking this out in a very uh, pure way, in a very holy way, but a very faith-filled way. Zechariah 5 says, Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and it's width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the laden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when, it is prepared, when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Father, again, help us. Help us with this imagery that you use to convey your truth and your light to your people. We are your people, Lord, and we trust that you will do the same. And Holy Spirit, we ask for your illumination. We ask for your understanding to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know. If you have this experience like I do in my house, uh, when my wife will ask me to get something out of the pantry or the attic, 
She tells me exactly where it is. You think that's simple enough, and I go and I look, and I don't see it. No, it's not in here. It's not up there. Yeah, it, she, then she, she, I need color. And I go to the grocery store. What color is it? Let me look for the color, and then I'll start reading. So she, said, and she tells me the color. She's this and that. All right. Uh, I, it's not there. And I'm so confident it's not there. I'll be standing at the pantry or the refrigerator, and she'll come right next to me. Grab it right in front of my face. You know, the, the, the little term that things are hidden in plain sight. Uh, what I, I wonder for us as Christians and as we start a new year, uh, there are, and I think it's good for Christians to have desires, spiritual goals and desires. And I hope one of those is to get more of the Word of God into us. We, it's okay that you know, the, the most read verse in the Bible is Genesis 1.1. Everybody says, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. If you've tried that and it hasn't worked, come talk with us, different plans that help you out so you're not lost in the Old Testament for too long, but you're able to, to take things. There's a myriad of, of helps in that. But my concern for us is that I think our Bibles a lot of times are hidden in plain sight. A few years ago, a survey revealed that uh, the average American household has over four Bibles in it, while just 60% of those who have a Bible read it at least four times a year. Now, the 40% said, we don't read the Bible. The 60% said, we read the Bible about four times a year. I was hoping for a week as I was reading this article, like four times a week. That's great. A year. A month would be better. A year. We have... You know, we have access to God's word that uh, the church, church history would be an astounded by. The fact that we have multiple Bibles in our possession, recognize that's not the way Christians lived for, for thousands of years. They, they had, a church maybe had a portion of the Bible, but now we have them on our phones and an app literally at our fingertips and open it up at any moment. Yet, we wonder how the world is spiritually out of control, moral control is just going by the wayside. And, and we live feeling like my life's just not fulfilled. I don't feel like I'm really happy. So we wonder about this, yet are our Bibles collecting dust or just passed over in our swiping on the, the home screen of our phones. In, uh, in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, there's a story of Josiah who was eight years old when he became king of Judah, and he was a good king. He was one of the good guys, and he wanted to do what God wanted to do. He instituted several reforms and began celebrating festivals that had been long forgotten by God's people. And he collected money to fix the temple. The church was just run down. The carpet was ragged. They said, you know what? Let's have a little giving campaign to spruce this place up. And while the priests were taking the money into a special closet to keep it, like, well, I guess we'll keep it in there because, so nobody steals it, they find this book. And they bring the book out, blow off the dust, and they recognize 
This is the book of the law that Moses gave. Brings it to Josiah. Josiah, rightfully so, tears his garment. He repents. We have forgotten God. Because the Bible was hidden in a closet and wasn't ever consulted. The word of God alive in us, church, is my pastoral burden. And I, I've, I've mentioned this before. We are to be, and I referenced the letter I sent, emailed out this week, uh, I put a little Facebook ad out to. We have to be, have to be people who read the word of God. Because my concern is this, we, we settle for secondary soundbite theology. What do I mean by that? You get an alert on your phone, it's a devotional thought, those are, those are helpful and they're, they're redirecting our focus toward God, but understand what we're doing in that moment. If we're not reading the Bible, we are taking somebody else's interaction with the Word of God for our own. We're taking, all right, what did you read? What did, what did you get out of that verse? And then you put in a little, little paragraph devotional thought that shows up in a news feed or in an email, and so I just kind of get this. That's not spiritually healthy. That's just trying to survive off crumbs. And we can't turn around and say, why does my life feel so miserable? God puts means of grace into our lives and, and act... Think about these means of grace as waterfalls of grace upon us. When you see a waterfall, it's wonderful to look at and be in awe of it. It's a very different thing to stand under the waterfall, to be in, just overwhelmed with the water that's coming off a cliff. We settle. As Christians, we settle for looking at somebody else's experience with God. And we think, wow, that's just so great. It doesn't happen to me. When we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that places us right under the waterfall to be inundated with glory, and joy, and peace, and all the fruits of the Spirit that God provides. What we're doing right now, our worship together as the body of Christ, our communion together, receiving the preached word. This is a means of God's grace. Our fellowship that happens within community groups, it's, it's a means of God's grace to put us under the waterfall for our own primary experience with God. Church, we need the Word of God. We need to read the Word of God, and we need to hear the Word of God. Now look, you know we have all kinds of access to great preaching and great preaching that's so much better than my preaching, I understand completely. I've got my favorite preachers. But God still speaks to us in this family through a preaching voice, a pastoral preaching voice. Because God wants us to walk out something and he wants us to do that in unique ways that we look toward one another and say, how is, all right, we, we heard the word, I've been reading the word, now I want to sow the word. God, God has, I believe, much in store for us as a church this year. But my concern is that we're not ready for it. Because we're settling for secondary sound bites. 
Well, we should be feasting. We are settling for elementary things in our relationship with God when we should be professors in the, the feasting of God. There should, be, there, there, there should be an understanding about us and a maturity about us that has weight to it. Where, listen, there comes a point that we're not struggling over the same sin pattern. There should be growth that we move on. We recognize, oh, those, those are sinful patterns of my life, evidences of pride and rebellion. I want to repent of those. If we're still repenting of the same pride and rebellion as the beginning of 2019, we're not growing. And I can usually point to somebody's personal devotions in that as the culprit. As you know, you start sinning, you don't want to read the Word of God. Because you know what it does to you and how it points things out to you. So we avoid the word and then we avoid the body of Christ. And these are the means of grace that God's given us. I just totally went a lot off topic there, but I needed to share it. The passage today for us is very appropriate. And God's timing is just always wonderful as I, I consider it. Because this is his warning to his people to remember his word. Like, remember my word, he's telling his people with that flying scroll. Part of his restoring his presence with his people was to call them to honor and obey his word. Their fathers had ignored his word, and they suffered exile for it. God doesn't want the restored community to make the same mistake as the pre-exile community. Remember the word of God and obey it. The visions of the scroll and the woman in the basket are clear reminders to obey God's word and with the woman in the basket, it's a, a picture of forsaking the iniquity of idolatry. The scroll re represents the word of God, the book of the law, and the woman in the basket represents the seduction of idolatry that hamstrings people, God's people, over and over and over again. Now, now church, these warnings are for us today. As believers, here's our main point in your notes, as believers, we are to honor the authority of God's word with our obedience as we forsake the idols that seek to capture our hearts. There's a war going on, and we feel it, and we know it. We need to be careful and mindful to make sure that we don't uh, give ourselves away into idolatry when God says, honor me. Now, the first section, the first four Verses. Remember, these are the uh, sixth and seventh visions out of eight that Zechariah received in, a, in one night. And the ones in this chapter, uh, in the first part of this chapter, they resemble a lot of the other ones, but it's about God's word being the banner over the lives of his people. Angel brings him. And again, gives him understanding for what he's seeing. What does he see? This is bizarre. A flying scroll, and it has huge dimensions. It's billboard size. 20 cubits by 10 cubits is 30 feet by 15 feet. That's really big. On one side says something about thieves, and the other side says something about liars. And, and it's waving in the wind as it's flying around. It's announcing something. Now, when, when you think of the... The history of God's people and how they treated God's word. Uh, in Jeremiah 36, Jeremiah was told, we have the story where Jeremiah was told to write down the prophecy and he gave it to his servant and the servant brought it to the king. And as the king was hearing the word of God, different response than Josiah's, 
every time he finished reading, they had a scroll there, every time the servant finished reading three columns, the king cut off those three columns with a knife and put them in the fire until the entire scroll was consumed. That's, that's the pride in us. We think we can control God that way, but what, what that king recognized is that if fire doesn't consume God's word, God's word is the consuming fire, and he comes after us. And the dimensions of this, this flying billboard are the same as the holy place in the tabernacle and the temple. Same exact dimensions. When you walk in, you had on the right side the table of showbread, or I think that's right. On one side, the table of showbread. On the other side is the golden lampstand, which he received another vision for that we looked at a few weeks ago. And at the very end, right before the curtain uh, that separated, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, God's Shekinah glory was there, there was the altar of incense. Now, all of, all of this holy place points to the work that Jesus is for his people so we can be in his presence. Remember what he said in John 6.35? He's the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In John 8.12, he said, I am the light of the world. And then Hebrews 7.25, the writer of Hebrews, reminds us that he lives to make intercession for us when we are in him. That altar of incense is the prayers. And we see that uh, all through Scripture, that God counts the prayers of his people as incense. In Revelation, we see the picture that he, he collects all of our prayers in bowls before him. And the elders that stand around his throne collect. Uh, oh, he doesn't forget one prayer. He doesn't forget one prayer. He stores them up. But this flying scroll is on a mission. There's activity to it. It's, it. There's a direction to it. God's word is not passive. It's not just a book on a shelf or hidden behind an app. God's word is living and active. Remember Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word... And when we interact with it, carries the activity of a surgeon operating to clear out the deepest infection or disease in the body. There's a, a twofold experience when we read the word. We are first divided and then healed. This dividing of, of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word goes directly into the deepest parts of who we are. And Zechariah was told that the scroll was the curse going out to cleanse. So this activity of the scroll going, this activity of the word of God has action to it that also brings a curse. See, God's people were told, if you obey my word, you'll be blessed. If you disobey and rebel, there's a curse that comes from it. God's word is the blessing of our lives that comforts us in our darkest sorrows. But it's also the curse when we rebel and disobey. And even as New Testament believers, we, we know that God's word comes to us to discipline us. Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us of that. It can, God's word, listen, God's word condemns us first so that it may comfort us. Because if it just comes to us as comfort, we don't recognize what it's trying to comfort. But when it comes to us and, and dissects us, it provides the healing that we really need. And we know God's word will confront us 
I'm so thankful that he comes after us to confront us. He doesn't leave us in our own place. See, God's word accomplishes God's work. Isaiah 55 gives us that reminder. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the reality for us in our own lives is that when we place ourselves with this living and breathing Word of God, it's doing something to us. It's capturing us. And God is bringing about fruitfulness, the fruitfulness He desires and has purposed and planned for in our lives. So there is change that we're looking for and lasting change that makes a difference. This also means when God, God's Word accomplishes God's work, it means God has the last word. And it's always for our good. God reminded, God reminded his people through the vision to Zechariah that he is serious about the word of his mission. And God will root out our sinful motives and intentions so that we walk out our salvation in the holiness and purity that he desires. But listen, that holiness and purity is the best life we could live. It really is. On one side, we have a curse against thieves. On the other side, a curse against those who are bearing, uh, falsely swearing liars. This should sober us, even now as believers, because God's word is weighty. It's true, and it matters. There's real consequences for disobedience. And God confronts the thief and the liar. Many commentators see these two uh, these two commandment references as representative of all the commandments. And specifically to Israel, from David to exile, when, when God uses David to bring peace through war, there's, there's accomplishing uh, peace through Solomon, 40 years of peace, he builds the temple, everything is great. From that time to exile, when they're taken into Babylonian ca- captivity, the the nation habitually stole from God and lied about their devotion. They stole from him by not letting the land rest for seven, every seven years. There was to be a, land, a rest. In the sixth year, you're supposed to trust that God would provide ample enough in that harvest to last the next year so the land would rest. And we were even told that. He, the 70 years is because of all the years that they ignored God's it was faithlessness. God, we don't think you're going to provide for us, so we're going to, we're going to keep on uh, harvest, uh, sowing and planting and harvesting. They also lied about loving him when they continually turned to idols to settle the sinful cravings that were going on in their hearts. They spoke as if God was on their side and he was for them when he was not. And again, church, we need this warning today. As with every sin, uh, it probably started with small steps that led to big steps. Perhaps they, they just planted a small portion of the field at first, and that first seventh year, and then all of a sudden the next seventh year it increases. Perhaps they began with small lies and little cheats when it came to dealing with their brothers. We must be on guard for these little sneaky self-sufficiencies when it comes to our money, and we also need to beware of the smallest of lies. 
in the, in the form of exaggeration. We need to be careful. We need to be sobered by the consequences that come when we disobey. This, they will bring destruction sooner than we think, and it brought destruction to the whole nation of Israel. Destruction arrives to the disobedience by the very promise of success and gain. The house built by disobedience is a house of cards. It will always fall. But God demands, even today, God demands our obedience. Check out these, uh, these scriptures. Jeremiah 7, 23. This is what God told his people. And this goes back, I could have included a bunch of scriptures about this. It goes back to Deuteronomy when Moses is telling everybody, obey and you'll be blessed. But Jeremiah says, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it, that it may be well with you. And Jesus, picking up on that in John 14, said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And John, in 1 John, says, by this we, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. So there, there's relationship with God when we obey. There's relationship with one another when we obey. There's love that we experience with God, and there's love that we experience with one another. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments, listen, are not burdensome. What well, is not the enemy of our souls love to tell us that we just can't do it, it's too hard? No, we have the Holy Spirit, which gives us the power to walk out this obedience. When we obey God, we get a home that's a blessing, a dwelling with God, an abiding with God. Our obedience becomes a guard to keep us in the blessing. So we don't, have to, we don't have to fear curse anymore. We, we will be disciplined if we stray, but God in his love brings us back so we understand and know him. God's word, church, is to be the banner, the billboard over our lives, and we are to submit ourselves to it in obedience. And the second uh, vision in this chapter is, is keeping in the same. Make sure... God's telling the people, make sure you honor my word and also make sure that you don't go after idols. And he sees this as a woman in a basket. I think what this, overall this vision is say, keep wickedness where it belongs and, and in the destruction that it wants to sow. Now, the woman in a basket, it's, it's a very strange vision. Very strange. How big is the woman? How big is the basket? The ephah basket is about like this big. That's a little tiny woman. How big is that woman? We're just, we're not sure. <laughs> uh, but the vision gives us a symbol for a spiritual reality that's unseen. The first part that is seen is a basket that goes out. Again, there's activity and movement to it. This could represent the forgiveness of sins that God gives us and the journey of our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west that we're reminded of and promised in Psalm 103. Then he's then told the cover was lifted, so it's closed. The cover's lifted, and a woman is there. And that woman's name is wickedness. That's weird. But I think it's communicating something very important to God's people. The woman uh, in Scripture many times is used to represent wickedness and folly. That usually is only just one decision away. It's represented as a woman 
uh, to show the alluring power of wickedness. Wickedness doesn't come strong-arming us like a man. It comes seducing us like a forbidden woman. Sin is tempting because it looks really, really nice and promises to feel as it looks, but it doesn't. In Proverbs 9, we are introduced to the woman folly. It says, the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Look, verse 17 right there in Proverbs 9. Stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So take what you want. Don't tell anybody about it. Those are crucial ways that folly sneaks up on us because when we do sin, we think, oh, nobody needs to know about this. And that secrecy grabs onto our hearts and we want more and more and more and the depths are the dead. Now the promise of sin never delivers. It's hollow, it's empty, it's a lie. We meet the woman again in Revelation 17. The woman there is a prostitute who is blasphemous as well as seductive. And she doesn't ride in a basket in Romans 17, she's riding on a dragon who's persecuting the church. I think these uh, two, the dragon and the woman in Revelation 17, represent the two attacks of God on the church in our time. You think about the globe, uh, many Christians around the globe are under persecution, attack, death is, is eminent for them by being a Christian. All the rest of the countries around the world who don't experience that, i.e. the United States, really deal with the seduction as an attack on the United States. If you listen to missionaries who live outside of the United States for a long time and come back, they are astounded by the, the, the progress into immorality through advertising and just the concepts of culture. I think the United States is under the attack of seduction. I think it's been under the attack for a very long time. From Satan himself to nullify the effectiveness of the church in mission and spreading the gospel. See, if we're, if we're seduced into thinking that everything's okay, we don't go and tell people about Jesus. And Zechariah is told that the basket is the iniquity in the land. The iniquity of Israel before they were exiled was seen as, it was known and, and identified as idolatry. They view God's presence with them as a right. God gave us himself, we're good. And they saw that as a guarantee for the blessing that they wanted to experience. They tried to serve God while falling for this seduction of idolatry and those around, the other gods around the lands. They tried to serve God and other gods. Really, they tried to live with God under their control rather than submitting to his control. We, too, face the daily seduction of success, luxury, sexual ease, and pride. And we fool ourselves into thinking that we can keep God in his place while we run after greed, while we run after comfort, run after significance, and run after power. You know, we, we grasp for idols when we, fear, fear, when we feel fearful in our lives. But we also grasp for idols when we feel threatened. Like, what in your life, if taken away from you right now, would destroy everything? 
it's probably a good litmus test for what's controlling your heart's desires and your affections. Maybe an idol in your own heart. Because all around us is success and luxury and sexual ease and pride of life. We clamp down on control when we're fearful. We clamp down on control of our lives when we feel threatened rather than surrender. And just like all the way in Genesis, we read Genesis 4, verse 7, that sin crouches at the door and its desire, it wants to rule over us, but we must master that sin. We must keep them locked up because the next part of the vision tells us that the basket was closed as quickly as it was opened to not let the woman wickedness out. This could be a warning to not let sin destroy what God is building in our lives. If we're believers, our sin has been removed from us, sent away from us, and we must be diligent to leave the contents in the basket and not open them back up. We are tempted to do. Past temptations can bring about present sins. Even, if, even though a sin has been repented of and growth has occurred, victory is occurring, God's grace is sustaining the same temptation from back then can revisit to give present sins. We must be on guard to avoid the destruction of wickedness. We need to flee. Flee lusts, flee cravings, and flee pride. Paul's encouragement to Timothy, so flee youthful passions, immature passions, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We have, as, we have part of our mission as God's people is to put our hand toward righteousness and faith and love and peace along with those. It's a call to do it within community and fellowship. But we do have the promise, and it's promised here, that wickedness will be ultimately destroyed. Praise God. Wickedness will be destroyed by the same destruction it brought into our lives. This basket is told to brought these women who come as with stork wings. They're flying out. So it's now an expedient movement out. So it's brought to the land of Shinar where uh, in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel was built. Man got together and sought to be God through their work and their collaboration in rebellion. They sought to build a house for themselves, but God confused them by giving them different languages. Their outward wickedness was stopped but that, that one day, but their inward wickedness still reigned. The vision shows that one day wickedness will return to the spot, to the spot of that rebellion, at the Tower of Babel, where they sought to build a house. No wickedness was building a house. And God will bring this wickedness right back to the house that was built for its own destruction. We have that promise in Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into, a, into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Praise God. Because we feel the relentless pressure and pursuit of sin and idolatry and the, the alluring nature of power and the, the seduction of ease and sex. But God says, honor me. Honor me and build a good house. The land of 
Shinar is also Babylon, which they came from, which Babylon is also promised the destruction in Revelation 18. So as we think about obeying and honoring the word of God, here's what that means. The word of God, when we do that, has a purifying effect over us. A few scriptures to help us understand that. John 13, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed, this is when Peter says, don't wash my feet, you're, you're too good, I'm too bad. This is the response. Oh, because Jesus says to Peter, if, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Oh, then, then wash everything, Jesus, wash everything. Peter, just passionate dude. The one who has bathed, he says to him, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So he's talking about Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. He's saying this, look, the one who has bathed does not wash, meaning the one who has already put their faith, repented of their sins and put their faith in me, you're clean. There's a purity and a holiness about you because of righteousness that Jesus places on you. Now he says, except for your feet, meaning we walk in the dust of the earth. We walk in society and culture that puts sinful grime on us. What's the answer to that? The word of Christ. John 15, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. In Ephesians 5, this is uh, the admonition for husbands toward wives, that their love of a wife is like Christ's love for his bride, that he might sanctify her, their sacrifice, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Jesus washes us. With the word. Just like you know your child who doesn't like to bathe and they walk around with a stench. It's like this is not pleasant. They don't stink to themselves. When we are not in the word, we are not receiving the preached word here. We, we don't smell anything, but something may be off. Place yourself under the cleansing power of the Word of God. Father, thank you for the gracious reminder. Thank you for the challenge that you place upon us to live, to have action and precision to our lives as we live for you. But God, we declare our dependence upon you. We need you. We, we've tried to do this in our own strength, and our own power, and we fall flat every single time. God, we repent of our own sneaky self-sufficiencies. Holy Spirit, help us recognize it so we can trust you and live for you each and every day. Please. And to live toward one another in a way that reminds us, we remind one another of your glory, of your work, and of the cleansing power of the word. Thank you.